reading the story of Jacob and Esau today, which is in Genesis uh, 25, starting at verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. On Thursday, my son Caleb, he's three years old, and he, we gave him a new jigsaw puzzle. He loves jigsaw puzzles. And he was working really hard at this jigsaw puzzle. Worked on it for about an hour. And he finished it all on his own. And he was so proud. He was just beaming with pride and joy. He invited Christine and I in. Mum, Dad, look at the jigsaw puzzle. Look what I did. I've done this all by myself. So proud. And then his little sister walked into the room, Hannah. She's almost two. And she saw this jigsaw puzzle and deliberately ran up to it, threw all the pieces in the air, ran out of the room laughing and leaving her son, her, her brother, screaming. <laughs> and uh, that, that's our cheeky daughter. That's what she's like. Um, that's sibling rivalry, isn't it? It, it? it is a normal thing. It's a natural thing. If you grew up with brothers or sisters, I'm sure there was fighting and annoying each other and trying to get your own way and bossing each other around. It's, it's pretty normal. Um, this story, though, we're meeting the greatest sibling rivalry in the whole Bible. Jacob and Esau, they were twin brothers. Uh, in fact, their rivalry is so big, uh, eventually they become the heads of two nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom, and both those nations are in rivalry. 
throughout the whole Old Testament. That's how big this rivalry is. Uh, In a few chapters' time, we're not going to get to it, but in Genesis 27, the rivalry is so great that, um, that Jacob dresses up as his brother to fool his blind dad that he's really Esau and steal Esau's blessing. And then Esau wants to kill him. So it even gets crazier. We're just going to look at the beginning of this rivalry here in Genesis 25. And what we're going to see in this sibling rivalry is a really important theological truth that God wants to teach us and an important warning. A theological truth and an important warning. I've broken up the rivalry like a boxing match into two rounds. Round one actually begins before the boys are even born. Round one, the battle for birth. Turn back to Genesis 25. It was our first reading. You want to follow along on page, I think it was 21, page 21. And this is how it begins, verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padamaram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. We've been following along so far in the story in Genesis and we've met Abraham. Abraham, the one God made promises to, to bless And that through him, he would bless the whole world. And then last week, we met his son, Isaac, and we saw how Isaac uh, meets Rebecca, his wife. Now we're getting to the next generation. So this is, these boys we're about to meet are Abraham's grandkids, Jacob and Esau. And, And look what it says. It says that the, verse 22, the babies jostled each within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, pregnancy is hard for anyone. I have great respect for uh, all women who have um, born children. And I watched my wife uh, carry two children. And uh, I remember her saying to me, if only you could be pregnant for once, because it is, it's hard work. Particularly those of you who have um, carried twins, like Rebecca, massive respect. Rebecca actually went through something extra hard. Because the babies are jostling within her. This isn't playful kicking. The original language says the babies were smashing themselves inside of her. So these babies were practicing cage fighting inside of their mum. It was WWE Smackdown every day inside Rebecca's womb. And so she goes to God and says, God, what is going on? And God says something really profound. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. I'm the oldest child. I'm the oldest of four. And... um, People often say that the oldest child is a position of privilege. I think that's total rubbish. We are the guinea pigs. We're the test runs. Uh, There was stuff that I wasn't allowed to do till I was 12. 
that my younger sister was allowed to do when she was 12 hours old. So, you know, I reckon we've, we've got a hard life. Uh, the research says if you're the oldest child, children, if you're the oldest child, the research says you're likely to be a high achiever, a perfectionist, a rule keeper, responsible. The research says if you're the middle child, you're likely to be flexible and a bit more carefree. And if you're the younger, you're likely to be the risk taker, the, the one who challenges authority and, and charms people. I don't know how you relate to that. Um, but in the ancient world, birth order really mattered. Because in the ancient world, if you were the oldest, you'd be the one that would inherit the family estate. The birth order really mattered. And especially in the context of the Bible here, God had made these promises to Abraham so they were to descend through the oldest child. There's a lot riding on being the oldest. But God says something shocking. He says, I'm not going to play by the social customs. I know in the social customs it's the younger serves the older. I do things my own way. I'm God. You've got two kids inside you, Rebecca, and the older is going to serve the younger. This would be like Queen Elizabeth hearing a prophecy 60 or so years ago that the throne would not pass on to Charles, but would pass on to Prince Edward. Throwing the customs out the window. It's shocking. And sure enough, the two babies are born and Esau comes out and he's looking really hairy. And so they name him Harry. <laughs> and then uh, Jacob comes out and he's holding his little brother's heel. It's like he's trying to yank his brother back inside so that he could come out first. They're fighting all the way to birth. What is God saying with this strange story? Well, this story is showing us a really important truth in the Bible. It's, it's the truth that God chooses people. That God in his love, that God in his sovereignty chooses who will be saved and belong to him. It's the truth that if you're a Christian here today and a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian because ultimately you decided it. and You're a Christian because God chose you before the beginning of time. It's often called the doctrine of election or predestination. And if you've been a Christian for a while, particularly if you're a Christian in youth group, uh, it's the kind of thing that um, Christians wrestle with and ask questions about. Uh, it's certainly confusing. And uh, you know, the things that God does is, is, is in many ways a mystery to us. And we often cringe at the idea that God chooses people, I think because we want to be free. We live in a culture where we want to be totally free to make our own choices. No one telling us what to do. No one holding us back. Totally free. You think about it, though, there's all kinds of things we're not free to do. Uh, I am not free to be in two places at once. I am not free to be the world's greatest soccer player. I mean, I could try, 
but I'm in my 30s and I'm not that great at soccer. And as much as I'd like to think that I could, could do it, I'm actually not free to do that. There's all kinds of limitations that we have on ourselves already. And God says here in the Bible, across the Bible, that he, yes, we have responsibility as humans, but ultimately God chooses who will come to him. Do you know what? This is actually a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. The, the Anglican 39 articles say this, our election in Christ, that's, that's this doctrine that God chooses, our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Why is this idea that God chooses us so sweet and pleasant and comforting? It's because before you were even born, before the beginning of time, God set his heart on you. Before the world was even created, God loved you and wanted you to be his. And that means that whatever you go through, nothing can shake that. That no matter how much suffering you go through or, or how much you screw up, that God loves you. That is a deep assurance, isn't it? That is an incredible comfort that nothing, no one, no experience can change his love for you because it has been the case since the, before the beginning of time. And it's also humbling. It's humbling. Flick with me to our second reading. Actually, it's going to be on the screen. You don't actually have to flick. Romans 9. It was our second reading. And the Apostle Paul, he is reflecting on this story of these two sons and how God chose Jacob and not Esau. And even though it's a few thousand years later, the Apostle Paul, he applies it to us. He says this. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So saying, you've got two twins, totally on even playing fields, Right? This is before they were even born. It's not like the two twins were born and, and God looked down on the two twins and went, all right, who am I going to choose? Gee, Jacob's pretty impressive. Yeah, he's getting good marks at school. He's, you know, more athletic. He's better looking. I'll pick him. This is before they were even born. It is entirely because of God. It is entirely because of God's grace that's how God chooses. He doesn't care about our birth rank. He doesn't care about how good looking you are, how impressive you are. He's not swayed by your social status or your gifts. If that were the case, he would choose us based on works. And that's what religion is, if you think about it. 
we're able to say, oh, God, God, God loves me because I've prayed five times today. God loves me because I'm a minister. God loves me because I'm a good neighbour and a good friend and I'm, uh, I'm a, I've got a good reputation. It just leads to pride. But how humbling is it that it has zero to do with you? God chose you before you were even born. God chose Jacob before he was even born. One day when you die and stand before the gates of heaven, and suppose there's someone there with a clipboard asking why they should let you in. Why should I let you into heaven? If the first words to come out of your mouth are, because I, then there's no way you'll get in. Because I've been a good person. Because I've done this. Because I read my Bible. But if the first words to come out of your mouth are, because God. Because God has loved me. Because God gave up his son for me. That's how we enter the kingdom of God. It is entirely him. All we can do is humbly thank him and praise him. Now, your reaction might be, well, how can God choose some people and not choose others? That's not fair. And uh, funnily enough, that's exactly what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9. He says, verse 14, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. But he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And just to make his point extra clear, in verse 21 he says, verse 20 he says, Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? In other words, God's saying, I'm God. I can do whatever I want. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I am the sovereign God. And you may not understand it with your human brain. But the mysterious things belong to me. To be honest, a better response is, why does God save any of us? It would be totally in God's Rights to not choose even one person after we've sinned against him, rejected him. He could have just said, right, I give up on these humans. Why does he choose any of us? It is entirely his mercy and grace and undeserved kindness. And I tell you, when we get to heaven... And we see everything perfectly. None of us is going to say to God, God, you stuffed up. God, you made the wrong decision here. You shouldn't have chosen this person. You should have chosen this person. None of us is going to say that. Because with the eyes of perfection, we will see things as God sees them. And it will make sense. This is a confusing doctrine. It is so hard to grasp our, get our little human heads around. And there's many more questions that come up. I wish we had time to deal with them. But what I hope you see is that it's, it's in the Bible and it's beautiful. 
It's beautiful and assuring and humbling. Perhaps one of the best verses about this truth that God chooses is in Ephesians chapter 1. It's on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. That's you if you're a follower of Jesus. Chosen before the creation of the world in love according to his will And we should respond with praise and thanksgiving because he gave up his son for us to call us into his family, to shower us with his spiritual blessings of love and peace and forgiveness. It is great news. That's the first theological truth. Round one, Jacob versus Esau before birth. The God chooses Now in round two, we have a warning. A warning. Round two, the battle for the birthright. The boys grow up. And uh, they grow up to be their own boys with their own personality. And Esau is uh, a favorite of his dad's. Because Esau is an outdoorsy kind of bloke. He loves hunting. He's your friend that's inviting you out canyoning or bouldering or... Uh, you know, just loving the great outdoors. That's Esau. That's your mate Esau. Jacob, I mean, he's a, he's a mummy's boy. Rebecca loves him. Jacob would much prefer to stay at home, have a nice quiet night in, make himself comfortable. He loves cooking and he likes to stay at home among the tents. That's what it says. Wonder who, anyone at associate with Jacob here? Anyone a bit more? There's no shame in that. It's okay. It's okay to be a Jacob to be a stay-at-home person. Uh, That's Jacob. And what happens one day is Esau's been out, he's been hunting food, and he comes in and he's so hungry. And his brother there has cooked a stew. Isn't that great? And immediately, he's so hungry. Jacob, give me that stew. I need it. And Jacob, he is scheming. He's manipulative. He's self-seeking. He's not painted in a good light here. And he has a plan. He says, I'll give you this bowl of lentil stew if you give me your birthright. The birthright was, was his inheritance as the, old, the oldest son. But more than that, it was, you know, the, the promises made to Abraham would flow down through the oldest son. And so Jacob's asking for all of that as well pretty scheming. And what does Esau do? What does Esau do? Look at verse 32. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. Talk about an exaggerator. I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. You know, sometimes when you have fine food, uh, you go to a really nice restaurant and you just savour every bite. You just enjoy the taste because you know it's cost a lot of money, it's great to be here, and you savour it. But you'd think Esau would do that. He's just given up his rights as the firstborn son and his inheritances of the promises of God for this bowl of stew. You'd think he'd really savour it. No, he eats it like it's a Macca's meal. As I said there, he ate and drank, then got up and left. Just shoves it down. What's he done? He has put his short-term needs of his stomach ahead of the kingdom of God. He has put his short-term pleasure, the desire for relief relief of his hunger, ahead of, of the promises of God. He knew the promises made to Abraham, his grandfather. Let me ask you, what is your lentil stew? What is your lentil stew? What is the thing in this world, and there might be more than one, that you are tempted to give up your faith for, abandon your spiritual birthright for? Look on the screen, Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of the Hebrews says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. The writer of the Hebrews, the big point of his letter is telling Christians, keep going. Keep persevering in the Christian life. Don't throw in the towel. He's writing to Jews who were tempted to to give it all up and go back to Judaism. And he's saying, "Don't, don't give it all up. Keep going. He says, don't be like Esau. See, for us, I think, in Sydney 2023, there's all kinds of lentil stews out there where we're tempted to to get a short-term hit, a short-term pleasure, and sacrifice the eternal things, abandon the promises of God, ignore God's word, or even throw in the towel completely with our faith. It might be sex, a relationship, building wealth, It might be our reputation or our desire for approval. And these things, they offer us a short-term pleasure. As the Christian, sometimes in the short term, life is hard. The Bible doesn't promise that if you're a Christian, everything will go well and you'll always be satisfied. But actually, when you zoom out, Jesus offers life to the full and life for eternity. And any short-term lentil stew 
that, that might tempt us in the short term to hung, satisfy our hunger, we'll get hungry again. Esau's going to need another lentil stew the following day. But the promises of God held out to us in Jesus of forgiveness and eternal life and, and satisfaction to the full, those things last for eternity. So press on, persevere. Turn away from these short-term empty promises and do not be like Esau. Heed the warning. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, you are, you've been on God's heart since before the beginning of time. Chosen and loved by him. The only right response is humility and worship because it's all because of his grace. But we must heed the warning. There's still a responsibility for us. We must press on. We must persevere. We must not get, throw in the towel and give up on our faith like Esau who traded it all in. Sin may look enticing, but Jesus is always better. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race marked out for you to inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, the truths of your word that we have seen today are mind-bending and mysterious and glorious. And we confess we need your help to, to, to grasp these deep things of you. We thank you, though, that this truth that you choose us is so, it is so humbling. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are a God who holds all things in your hands. We thank you that you brought us to know you and had mercy on us. Lord, help us to persevere. Help us to turn away from sin and the temptations of this world. Help us to reject the, the offers of empty pleasure and to keep clinging to you for the rest of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name.